Our model of democracy, underpinned by human rights and the rule of law, is being challenged across the globe. Human rights are our ultimate tool to help societies grow in freedom. And we must have the foresight and courage to imagine what might happen if we don't act now. And instead, please, create the world as it should be. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, from all creeds, races and tribes, they are the heroes of this story. Welcome to Intersections, where human rights and democracy meet. I'm Marty Flax, Director of the Human Rights Initiative and Kosravi Chair in Principled Internationalism at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Each episode, we'll tackle current events with activists and policymakers at the center of efforts to promote human rights and build stronger, more sustainable democracies. Welcome back to the Intersections podcast. Helping me to read the news today is Catherine Zhu, our research intern at the Human Rights Initiative. Catherine, what's our first news item? On July 14th, Russia's President Vladimir Putin signed a bill that makes it easier for officials to restrict the activities of Russian independent media and civil society. The bill amends the 2012 foreign agent law, which was introduced after mass protests erupted around Putin's return to the presidency. So Catherine, remind us what the foreign agent law is and what it says. The foreign agent law allows the Russian Ministry of Justice, one, to label certain individuals and groups as foreign agents, and two, to require these people to call themselves foreign agents in all written communications on top of submitting to additional expensive audits and paying fines. As you can imagine, the law has been a tool to suppress some of the regime's strongest critics. And how is this law changing with the new bill? First, it's much easier for the Russian government to accuse someone of being a foreign agent. Before, there were two criteria. One, receiving funding from abroad, and two, participating in quote-unquote political activities, which in practice includes things like election monitoring or publicly expressing a view on a policy. Now, however, you just need to be quote-unquote under foreign influence to be called an agent. You don't need to receive money from abroad. So individuals who, for example, receive international technical assistance or organizational assistance can be considered to be under foreign influence. So there's a lower ceiling to label critics as foreign agents. Second, the penalties for foreign agents are also much heavier now. They are no longer allowed to sell goods or services to the state, advise any environmental or information agencies, or teach at public institutions. It narrows the scope of activity for so-called foreign agents and cuts them out of the public sector. That's interesting, Catherine, and it certainly is a pretty serious escalation of the crackdown that the Russian government has perpetrated against civil society and the media, particularly since the war in Ukraine started. Absolutely. And this is very worrying, especially because the bill will also create a list of people affiliated with foreign agents. So it's not just dissidents themselves, but also their family, friends and supporters that might be affected. Absolutely. And I think it also reinforces the need to think about human rights defender strategies that incorporate protecting not just the defenders themselves, but as you said, their extended families. And as we think about the war in Ukraine, which we're all very focused on in terms of human rights, to not forget what's happening inside of Russia. Let's talk about the next news item. 
We had a very interesting development recently in the field of technology and human rights. On July 14th, the Community Court of Justice of the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS for short, ruled that Nigeria's ban on Twitter was unlawful and violated the freedom of expression of people in Nigeria. So this is a really interesting case. So for context, do you remember that the Nigerian government had banned Twitter from June 2021 through January 2022 after Twitter removed a post by Nigerian President Buhari that they interpreted as inciting violence? The ECOWAS court finding that uh, that suspension of the operation of Twitter is inconsistent with the provisions of the African Charter on Human and People's Rights and Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is really interesting because it really puts a spotlight on the role that social media now plays in freedom of expression. The court has ordered the Buhari administration to better align its policies and to take measures to ensure that Nigerians do enjoy their full freedom of expression and access to information and the media. And it'll be really interesting to see what steps the Nigerian government takes from here to ensure that future shutdowns don't happen. It's also, I think, worth noting, Catherine, that the Nigerian government only lifted the ban on Twitter back in January after Twitter agreed to a list of demands, including some promises to act with quote, a respectful acknowledgement of Nigerian laws and the national culture and history, but also appointing a local representative and establishing an office inside Nigeria, paying taxes in Nigeria. Some of these steps sound innocuous and some of them might even be appropriate, but others of them make it much easier for the Nigerian government to intimidate Twitter and its staff by threatening its employees. Um, And so it's worth keeping an eye on those steps that Twitter has been required to take in response and how that impacts their relationship with the government of Nigeria going forward. And this is a problem that we see elsewhere, too. On July 6, Twitter announced a legal challenge against the Indian government, which issued a letter warning it of serious consequences for not following directives to take down certain content, including content from activists and human rights organizations. The Indian government passed a digital information technology law that allows it to restrict content that, in its view, undermines public order or the security of the state, and has made multiple requests to Twitter to restrict tweets and even entire accounts based on this argument. So this is an interesting trend that we're seeing in all of our news stories today, the role that social media companies are playing in human rights conversations and the choices that technology companies have to make about how they operate in increasingly difficult environments and when they receive requests or orders from governments to restrict or take down their content. Obviously, we'll have to wait to see the outcome of this lawsuit Um, But I think this is an issue that is worth diving into a little further. And so I'm really excited to have as our podcast guest today, Ali Funk, who is the research director for technology and democracy at Freedom House. Ali leads the Freedom House's technology and democracy initiative, which publishes the Freedom on the Net report, a series of yearly reports on Internet freedom all around the world, and the Election Watch for the Digital Age, which looks at the impact of technology on elections. Welcome, Ali. We are so glad to have you on our podcast this week. Yeah, happy to be here. So, so many of our news stories today touched on the impact of technology companies and especially social media companies on human rights. So I'm really looking forward to having you 
help us unpack some of these stories. And I wanted to start with the decision by the ECOWAS Community Court of Justice that Nigeria's seven-month ban on Twitter actually violated Nigerians' right to freedom of expression. So help us put this decision in context. How important is it that the court found that access to social media is actually a critical component of freedom of expression? Yeah, definitely. Um, I view this case as just something that's really important. Um, The block of Twitter in Nigeria last year, it sort of exemplified this high stakes battle between governments and tech companies around the world, where you have governments who want to assert their authority over tech companies' behavior, how they operate. So in the case of Nigeria, the, the block came after Twitter removed a post by the country's president that the platform claimed violated its rules on abusive behavior. Um, and it seemed to sort of threaten violence against a particular group of folks. So the, the post didn't openly threaten violence, but what I found was interesting about it is that Twitter's decision to remove it suggests that the platform was aware of some historical and regional context and what happened in the country. And of course, you know, removing that post really fired up the president and sort of the ruling party. And then in response, you know, it blocked the platform for over half a year. And then Twitter didn't come back sort of online until the platform agreed to follow a range of different rules. So one of those has to do with uh, requiring Twitter to open up a local office or to appoint sort of these in-country representatives. Another one had to do with the platform pledging to consider, quote, national security and cohesion, you know, within, I think, its content moderation. And what it seems to happen in this case is that the government sort of used its position as a gatekeeper for access to that market to get the platform to do what the government wanted it to do. So by blocking it, it then had more leverage over Twitter to open up this local office, to change its content moderation in a way that it agreed with, you know, which is concerning when you actually unpack what's happening in Nigeria. There's been a broader decline in internet freedom in the country. We've seen how these sort of local office requirements put company employees and the crosshairs between the state and the private sector. So then you can like threaten an employee to get a company to undertake censorship. So you know, going back to the original question is really the ruling is actually really important of saying, no, this block violated free expression of folks in the country. And, you know, the government needs to take action so it doesn't repeat this in the future. Yeah. And what's interesting about what the Nigerian government did is there's all kinds of pressure on governments to better regulate social media in here in the United States and in many other countries. But we've seen increasingly this kind of overreaction or overregulation, where governments have gone much further than anticipated or required to address a particular concern. So, you know, you've talked about in your research on Freedom of the Net report and elsewhere, this trend of governments blocking access to social media platforms or even blocking access to the entire internet when they feel threatened by civil society, activism, or others. So do you think that court rulings like this will start to change the calculation of governments and how they think about this social media strategy? It's really important normative work, I think. So if you're looking at the case of ECOWAS and around Nigeria, um, it's actually not the first ruling in relation to internet shutdown. There was one from 2020 in which the court ruled about an internet shutdown in Togo was similarly unlawful a few years back. So, you know, I think if you're just looking at the ruling, one of the things that I find interesting is 
it places internet access and access to social media platforms as fundamental components of protecting free expression. And I think understanding human rights and and how it plays out more with technology and the digital age and how courts are understanding that is really important. And then I think relatedly is how we've tracked, Freedom House has tracked this trend in sub-Saharan Africa, but also around the world about how strategic litigation and using judiciaries when they have space to be independent is a really important tactic to protect human rights. And it can create a real difference. I mean, I talked about that normative role, but also just setting legal precedent when you're talking about courts in a particular country that sort of ties a government's hand or a regulator's hand of how they can behave. And I think another interesting case of this playing out was in Zambia, you know, last year around presidential elections, the government blocked a lot of major social media platforms. And Chapter One Foundation, a civil society group in the country, sued the regulator there, arguing that it didn't have the authority under existing law to order those blocks. So the court came back and and said, yes, that's actually right. And they came to some consent agreement that means that the regulator now has to act within its own legal authority. And it also has to provide some sort of notice to people if it is going to have some sort of restrictions in the future. So the court decision both strengthened transparency and accountability. And that example is really sort of like civil society at its finest of when you have like civil society with deep engagement around these issues and understands the technical nuance of them can really achieve like a lot of progress for human rights online. Yeah, and it does feel like the courts are kind of filling the gap where there isn't clear policy and there isn't clear regulation and there's a need in this space. And I even reminded of the case here in the US of WhatsApp bringing suit against NSO group for violation of its terms of service for the spyware that it's to help governments kind of spy on civil society and journalists and taking companies and civil society taking action to step in where government hasn't really adequately regulated this space. But I'm curious what other tactics and approaches you're seeing from civil society and others who are trying to define the appropriate government role in regulation of social media. What are the strategies that they're adopting? So beyond strategic litigation in the judiciary, there's kind of a whole list of tactics that I would flag. I mean, one is really working with a tech sector within a country and civil society around sort of key moments where we think these restrictions might happen. So like ahead of an election, if we think there might be protests coming up, sometimes there's shutdowns around exams. So like maybe ahead of that, and then communicating to regulators, to policymakers in the country, what's the risk of if they do this? It hurts local economies. It can help actually breed more misinformation could create like even more violence in some, there's some research that suggests that it makes people unsafe. So communicating those risks of a shutdown to people who have the decision-making power. Another one is really diplomatic engagement and working with the sort of multilateral pledges that governments are a part of. So like the Declaration for the Future of the Internet, the Freedom Online Coalition. So that's like government to government engagement of saying like, hey, maybe you shouldn't shut down the internet. That diplomatic coordination can be really important. And then the other one that I'll flag too is just like advocacy to the companies who are actually taking the government orders. So like telecommunication companies of outlining, civil society can outline to them of like, hey, these are all the steps you can take to resist a repressive order. So whether that's strengthening legal capacity in companies to review orders to see if they're actually in line with under a country's legal regime. 
And then more broadly, I think, unfortunately, this sort of censorship, it's not going away. So we have to think about how to build resilience against them when it does happen. So this is about like strengthening access to open source circumvention tools like uh, virtual private networks, VPNs, trying to make a telecommunications market more diverse and competitive. So you have more companies that might resist an order. And then just like strengthening judicial independence, strengthening the legal framework for free expression. That's long-term work that takes a lot of time, but I think it's also this broader democracy work that's really important here. Yeah, that's great context for, as you said, the broader conversation that we're having around protecting democracy and human rights and the role that technology plays in that. It kind of gets to a fundamental question I wanted to ask you, which is, in your mind, when you're thinking about what you want governments to do in this space, what's the right balance between governments protecting free expression online and governments preventing hate speech or preventing violence online. You know, we are having feels like the opposite debate in the U.S. where there's a push for government to take more control over the decision making about what should be online. And certainly a lot of social media companies are pushing for government to take that decision out of their hands. In other places, many places, civil society doesn't trust government to make that judgment, as you just said, because of censorship issues. But what are the standards or what's the framework that you would think about in terms of how to get that balance right? I feel like it's the million dollar question, right? Of like, there's so much there's so much tension and sort of different human rights or democracy work of like, how do you protect this right that might undermine this right? And I, I think it's just a really hard conversation. What we've tried to do at Freedom House is lay out some sort of best practices of this regulatory approach and thinking through like, we all know there's really very genuine online harms that's occurring across these platforms that's spilling out into offline spaces. We saw that in the US with disinformation and the January 6th attack. You see that maybe in India or Brazil with how disinformation spread across WhatsApp. And then, you know, also how the different algorithmic systems can sort of push these harms and, and actually exacerbate them. There's been a really interesting switch within the internet freedom community from uh, this like laissez-faire approach a decade ago to thinking now of like, oh, we do need to do something. There is actually a role for the government to protect human rights in this space. But we need to make sure that we're doing that very carefully because like we've been talking about, a lot of governments are using this conversation around the tech sector has too much power, the conversation about regulation to just submit their censorship and surveillance powers. What some sort of things that we've called for is if you're thinking about, okay, how do we make a more diverse, more resilient information space? How can we increase transparency about how companies are operating? How can we strengthen human rights due diligence and reporting so we actually know what is occurring on the platforms in different contexts? We can strengthen sort of oversight in, and strengthen provisions around how to make sure that algorithmic systems, advertising practices aren't contributing to discrimination and pulling out, you know, particularly communities. So strengthening non-discrimination laws, for example. And then in sort of any of these laws that are trying to, to touch on online content, not just outsourcing that to companies, because if we're making companies more liable for the content on their platforms, you're going to incentivize them to remove more speech that is going to be political, social, and religious speech. So instead, you know, making sure there is strong judicial oversight that if you are requiring platforms to remove, you know, really dangerous content, there's a role for courts there. 
so that's one thing. And then I think the other way to think about this too is like, we need to strengthen privacy protections, data privacy laws, protecting encryption. A lot of governments are going against encryption, including democratic governments, which I, we think is really alarming. And then also thinking about how do we increase competition into the market and uh, making sure that internet users can sort of design their own online experience is so protecting things like interoperability between platforms, between messaging services. And then just the last thing I'd touch on is I think that there's always within policymakers or regulators, like an urge to go toward techno solutionism to be like, oh, yeah, technology can solve these problems. But in reality, you know, disinformation and harassment has been around long before social media. We have to look at sort of the root causes of these problems. And that requires things like civic education, really investing in civic education, investing in media literacy, local media environments. So many local media environments have just been totally saturated and taken over by, you know, big institutions. So strengthening those environments as well um, is a way to kind of get at some of these problems. So let's circle back to the question of the role of the private sector, because you alluded to this balancing act between how much responsibility the government has for managing this issue and how much responsibility is on companies, especially in the absence of clear guidance from government. You wrote a piece recently about a really interesting situation in India where the government pulled down some content or requested some content be pulled down and Twitter is actually pushing back and is actually taking the government to court um, to protect uh, what it's what it is arguing is free speech. So I want to hear a bit more from you about that case and your perspective on that balance and that responsibility of companies to engage in this. Yeah, I mean, what's happening in, in India is just such, it's really alarming. We have, Freedom House has tracked sort of India's broad democratic decline for a few years now, so much so that back in 2021, we like changed its sort of freedom status under our Freedom in the World Report from free to partly free. The country's government has gone increasingly Hindu nationalist at the expense of other marginalized communities. Journalists have faced the attack activists. I mean, you have like the government just ordering platforms like Twitter and Facebook to just criticize content. Then you just have this like really increasingly onerous regulatory environment that's compelling companies to participate more in data collection, surveillance and censorship. And the way this is just impacting folks on the ground is like concerning, you know, human rights defenders, activists, journalists are facing the brunt of these tactics. And then if you look globally as well, we kind of view India as a bellwether for internet freedom. So what happens there really does have these global implications. Twitter was ordered to restrict a bunch of tweets. At some point, we know that the government ordered the platform to restrict Freedom House tweets for users based on the country. The government disagreed with the border we use in our maps in relation to Jammu and Kashmir. So that was uh, one of the reasons it justified why the company should restrict our tweets. So Twitter brought a legal case. We aren't exactly sure which posts are touched on in the legal case because the government's legal regime is is really secretive and Twitter can't tell you us anything about it really. So we brought this case arguing that one law, the Information Technology Act that was passed back in 2000, that the way the government is interpreting it is overly broad and disproportionate and trying to get the court to rule. That's the case and kind of rein in how the government can, can understand the law and use it. So I think this it's such an important case. It's an example of like a company rightfully using its power and influence to try to protect free expression. So I think it'll be a really important case to follow that we should all be paying attention to. Yeah. And do you see this trend continuing of the private sector, social media companies in particular, 
taking up these issues themselves, going to court, challenging government decisions? And is that a direction you want to see them go as they think about their human rights policies and approaches? Do you see that as a helpful contribution? Yeah, I do. I think with the caveat that these cases can be really important. We've talked about this this whole podcast. But we need to make sure that the cases we're bringing are really strategic. So there might be certain contexts in which actually bringing a case in front of a particular court, we could kind of assume that maybe that's not going to go our way. So that's why it's really important for these companies to staff up on folks who know these contexts, know the countries in which they're operating, can speak the local languages, and that they're working with civil society in tandem to be strategic in that we're going to bring the cases with the biggest likelihood of success and that we're sort of using the legal system in our favor. I think it's a really, really important tactic. And I do hope that it continues around the world. Yeah, you always want the strategic litigation to be strategic and to be put in the right context, as you said. So that's really important. And I think the point about doing that in coordination with local civil society is also a really important point to make because they are ultimately usually the ones impacted most by these policies in the first place. So I just wanted to ask sort of more broadly about social media companies and their human rights policies and, you know, what else you would like to see go into those policies as they're thinking about working in these increasingly difficult operating environments. You know, Meta just put out its first human rights report relatively recently. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that particularly, but as social media companies move into all of these markets or try and operate in these markets that are increasingly closing, you know, what do you want their human rights policies to be in those places? Yeah. So I think that like, first, we should acknowledge that there has been a lot of movement in the right direction for certain companies. I mean, this is where like civil society, I think, has been incredibly effective working with the companies and the companies like engaging with them to better their policies, to better their practices, to make sure they're human rights compliant. And obviously, there's so much more work to be done and that that work has not been consistent across different countries. One very tangible thing that can be done is is strengthening companies' automated systems so that they work better within all the different local languages in different countries. So that when you have sort of, you know, there's an election in Kenya, that content moderation there is not just focusing on, you know, one or two of the main languages when there's all these other ones as well. And then increasing transparency. I mean, we talked about the meta human rights report. That's great. That's been something we've been calling for. We want more of that. But, you know, I am concerned about some of the claims from civil society about sort of how meta treated the the investigation into India. We've been talking about how India is such a big market right now with so many implications. And, you know, if you look at what civil society has been saying that the assessment might have been scaled back, We haven't been closely involved in that, so I'm not sure, but just looking at some of those concerns, it's really important for us to know how Facebook's operating in the country, what harms are occurring across the platform, so we can hold the company to account and make sure that their practices are stronger for for human rights. And then we've talked about better engagement of civil society is really important, but making sure that when companies do that, we're not offloading work to civil society because everybody's already overworked and underpaid. So that that is an actual partnership and they're given the resources to do that effectively. Another thing is like talking about like, how do we design the products themselves? So product designers, engineers have human rights training who can think about like how the implications of a particular app or like how an app store runs how that might play out for an activist on the ground who has their phone searched and isn't allowed to have a VPN on their phone. So really thinking through when you're actually developing those tools themselves. 
Absolutely. So lastly, Ali, I wanted to project forward a little bit and think about where this conversation is headed and what's happening both in the U.S. and also globally in the policy space. Last year, the administration held the Summit for Democracy, and it had a big focus on you know, the role of technology in promoting democracy uh, and in some cases undermining democracy. And they now have this sort of year of action that's underway with the launch of a, you mentioned it before, a declaration of for the future of the internet and kind of cohorts of countries and NGOs and others that are interested in this technology and democracy conversation. So tell us your impressions about these efforts and where they're headed and where you would like to see them headed over the next year. In, what do you think that this process could do that would really produce an impact? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's been so much movement around technology and democracy over the past year. And like, it's honest, it's quite astonishing. I mean, I'm even trying to keep track. If you try to make a list, you have like the State Department's new cyber bureau, USAID is now having a whole new digital democracy that they're building out. You have the Tech for Democracy Corps, Summit for Democracy. The U.S. government's going to be the chair of the Freedom Online Coalition next year, Declaration for the Future of the Internet. And I think what this signals is that we're in a moment for these issues in which policymakers realize that dealing with technology is fundamental to the future of democracy. And I think it's a really important moment now that we can like jump on that. We've been saying, civil society been saying this for years, and now we see some really helpful movement in that direction. So if I'm just zooming in on the Declaration for the Future of the Internet, for one, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there. It's, it's really concretely framed around human rights, about keeping this, the internet free, open, interoperable you know, in response to rising internet fragmentation. I think that it's good to see. It's great that there is a over 60 governments that also come from the global South, not just EU, US governments. But I think one thing that was missing for me was really a discussion around encryption. I mentioned this earlier, but like the way that governments have trying to gone after encryption, particularly Five Eyes governments, local law enforcement, is really concerning since encryption is such an important baseline technology to protect broader human rights. So I think the declaration missed an opportunity to call that out. And I imagine the politics of doing that is quite complex. But I think the next steps then for the declaration, for the tech and democracy cohort, all these movements, is how do we operationalize it? How do we get signatories to live up to what they committed to? Because it's just a political commitment. And that is where we have to think about in certain countries, what's the carrot and the stick to get them to like policymakers to behave in a way that might protect human rights. In order to do that, you need to work with folks in the country because, you know, a civil society group in Brazil will have a better idea of how to get the government to better protect a resilient information space ahead of the election. And if we're thinking also around like the Summit for Democracy, in a lot of these cohorts, we've been talking about like, don't just engage folks who were invited to the summit. You can't forget about the countries that were not invited because there might be a lot of folks in private sector, civil society, again, in a really repressive government that we can't leave them behind and they have to be involved in the conversations. So I think there's a lot more work to be done in, in figuring out how all these different initiatives connect together. I don't have neat answers. I don't think anybody does, but I think we're at a really important moment that I feel a little optimistic that finally folks are paying attention about these issues that hopefully we can hammer out the details and head in the right direction. Yeah. And it's a really good reminder that there's so much focus on the U.S. role in regulating social media companies because so many of them are based here. And obviously that's an important conversation that has to continue, but it's not the only U.S. role 
in this conversation. And so all of the initiatives that you talked about that are outward facing, that are focused on U.S. foreign policy and how we engage other governments, how we support civil society organizations. It's really interesting to think through what our opportunities are there to help evolve their law and their policy and also empower civil society to engage their governments. Well, Ali, thank you so much for giving us your analysis of what's happening in this space. As you said, there's a lot going on here. It's a space to watch over the next few months in the context of the Democracy Summit, but also in general in terms of U.S. foreign policy. So we appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. More information on these issues can be found on this episode's webpage at www.csis.org slash podcasts slash intersections. Follow the Human Rights Initiative on Twitter at CSIS Human Rights. If you like what you just heard, click subscribe. See you soon.